All right. Under the radar, a study of the Bible's unsung heroes. As I mentioned in the prayer tonight, we're going to be concluding this series uh, on some of the Bible's greatest figures who have gone undetected by the 21st century radar. In our first class, if you'll remember, we studied the need for us to use our talents for the betterment of the kingdom of God. And in that first class, we studied from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we took that verse by verse, and we saw that God has appointed each and every one of us to perform a role, a function, or a purpose. And we saw how God Himself has set each of us among the body of Christ, just as He has pleased. And our study this quarter has been in an effort for each of us to find exactly what that purpose is. What purpose we can perform in the Lord's church. And so this quarter we've been looking at examples of men and women throughout all the Old and New Testament that made all the difference for the purpose that they were called to fulfill. As we looked at Mordecai, we saw that he was persistently humble in his faith, and in so doing, he saved the nation of God's people from complete annihilation. And we learned that if we are persistent in our beliefs, and if we are humble in our walk with God, that we too can save souls, that we can save the church, we can save God's chosen people the same way. We saw that Luke preserved the life of Jesus through his gospel. He preserved the life of the early church through his book of Acts. And he preserved the life of Paul as a physician and a fellow laborer. And because of that, we learn that we too can preserve the truths and the pattern that has been revealed to us through Scripture. We learned about Shifra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat and how they feared God and they saved the generation of Hebrew boys and the life of Joash. And because of their example of fearing God, we learned how we need to fear God regardless of the consequences of what that might mean to our livelihood, our popularity, or even our very lives. We saw that Andrew brought people to Jesus because he knew that if he could just get these people before Jesus, if he could just get them to the Lord, that he would know what to do. Because of that, we too learned that we have to bring people to Jesus and that we are called to do the exact same thing in our life. And that's why we're going and doing likewise this year. We saw how Caleb wholly followed God, that Caleb was all in, and we learned the need for us to be all in, even when it's difficult, and even when no one else is willing to be all in. We have to be all in. We saw how Dorcas had a servant heart, and because of that, God raised her from the dead, and we saw how we too can be a people who are servant-hearted. In fact, we have to be servant-hearted as Christians. We saw how Jonathan, even though he had every right to the throne, every right to the kingdom, right to the fame and the glory, he denied himself and he gave it all to David instead. And because of his example, we learn how we need to deny ourselves 
for the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We saw how Stephen was the leader, the worker, the preacher, the martyr, the igniter who ultimately inspired others to go and scatter throughout all the regions preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. And because of that, we too can choose to inspire the world when so many quench people's fire. And then we saw how Jethro carried himself with wisdom all of his life because of his wisdom, one of the greatest leaders in all the Bible was able to succeed. And because of his wisdom example, we learn how we must have wisdom in our lives if we're ever going to succeed as a church and as a congregation. And then lastly, last week, we saw the, the life of the Hebrew, or excuse me, the, the, the wife, start over, the maid of Naaman's wife, Yes, the maid of Naaman's wife, we learn how even though all she had known, all her family, her, her, her homeland, her way of life had literally been stripped away from her, we saw how she kept the faith. And because of that, a pagan king got to witness the power of Yahweh and Naaman's leprosy was healed. Because of this example of keeping the faith, we challenged each other to keep the faith in our lives. And all of these lessons have encouraged me to know that God doesn't expect us all to be a Peter or a, a, a David or a Moses or a Paul, but He expects us simply to be who He has called us to be in the way He has set us among the members. And with that, we're ready to begin our study tonight as we look back into our final unsung hero, our final undetected figure in the Scriptures. And we're going to be going back into the New Testament to study about a man who really never gets the credit that he deserves for the amazing things that he did for the growth of the kingdom. And as we journey through the book of Acts, the epistles of Paul, and even the first epistle of Peter, there is someone who continuously makes an impact from behind the scenes. There is someone that has gone unsung. He is a man that is referred to as a prophet. He was referred to as a leader from among the brethren. He was a comforter. He was the one who strengthened and encouraged the church. He was a man who, as a song leader, you might say he could literally bring the house down. Uh, we're going to be talking about tonight the life and the impact of the man who Peter would call his faithful brother. We're going to be studying the unsung hero, Silas. Silas. No, not Barnabas. I got you. So when we think about the life of Paul, we often realize and make note of the incredible uh, impact of Ananias, right? Ananias was the one who converted him, brought him to Christ, and we realize all the great things that Ananias did for Paul's life. Also, we look and realize the amazing encouragement 
that Barnabas was to him, right? The son of encouragement. In fact, he was the only one, the only reason that the apostles in the early church even accepted Paul because he encouraged them. He persuaded them that we have to accept this guy, Paul. And so for all these years, we've seen Barnabas in such a great light. And rightfully so, we also never fail to discuss Timothy's part within the life of Paul because of the great mentorship, the great relationship that those two had. But when it comes to the life of Silas, I'm afraid that we have allowed him to go undetected from the radar for far too long. And hopefully our study tonight, we will see at the end just how important Silas was to the success of Paul, the greatest missionary who ever lived. Now, when we think about Silas, we have to establish on the, out, on the onset that this man, throughout the Scriptures, is known by two different names. First of all, you have Silas, right? That's what we're going to be calling him tonight. And that's the name that we find throughout the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, he is known as Silas. And this was probably his Jewish name. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, elsewhere, we find that he is known as Silvanus. And that is potentially probably his Greek name. And even how later on it would be translated from the Koine Greek to the Latin, Silvanus. But again, for our purposes tonight, we're going to be calling him Silas as we study the life of this great unsung hero. The first time that we run into Silas, or Silvanus, is in the book of Acts, chapter 15. And go ahead and turn in your Bibles there as we begin the study of this great man. Notice as you're turning there about who recorded the life of Silas. Our unsung hero tonight is being written about by another one of our under-the-radar figures from earlier in this quarter, Luke. And yet again, it's amazing to see all the things that Luke wrote about, Luke preserved, and Luke mentioned and kept us aware of thousands of years later. Luke writes about Silas. I just find that amazing. But in Acts chapter 15, as, as we're trying to get some context as to what's going on, we see that the apostles and the brethren in Jerusalem were having a dispute. They were having a, a discussion. They were having a, a heated discussion, perhaps, over circumcision. You know, circumcision, the practice that had for centuries proven that you were one of God's chosen people. The practice that every male from the time of Abraham to the moment that we are reading here in Acts chapter 15 that they were supposed to do. And here we find this heavy dispute. Because the gospel had now been revealed, it had now been preached to the Gentiles. And many of them, if not any of them, had ever been circumcised. None of them had been circumcised, never had been consecrated in that same manner or way. And so the big question they had is, is do all these Gentile converts need to be circumcised still? I mean, shouldn't they be circumcised if they are going to actually be the chosen people, the, the descendants of Abraham, the chosen seed of Abraham? 
And so when you look at chapter 15, you, you see in there in verse 1, someone, a, a group of people were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that's a hot take. That's pretty important. It's pretty important for us to understand if you can be saved without circumcision. And this was a heated discussion that the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, all throughout the New Testament, these Jewish Christians were asking this question. And obviously, we know that Paul and Barnabas at this time, they're out there converting Gentiles, who this would obviously automatically rule them out as candidates for salvation, unless they were circumcised. If this were to be true, these Gentile converts were having to take an extra step in their salvation. That is not recorded thus far in the book of Acts, and so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of contention. And so Paul and Barnabas, they say, listen, this is becoming such a big problem that we just need to go to Jerusalem and figure this out. We need to go to the church in Jerusalem. We need to discuss this with the rest of the apostles, with the brethren, with the elders there. And so that's exactly what they do. And after much debate and discussion and disputing, verse 7 of chapter 15 indicates that that was the case, that it was very heavily debated. After they had that discussion, Peter, who obviously was the leader of the group in that time, stood up and challenged them Listen, why are we putting this yoke of burden upon these people when our fathers couldn't bear it, neither could we? Why would we then turn around and bear, give them this yoke that they were not able to bear, meaning all the Mosaic law and all the statutes and, and, and precepts that came with it? Why are we keeping this when the Lord Himself never instituted circumcision as a means or a mode of salvation or a mode of proving you are, you are God's child, Jesus never mentioned it. So why are we? And so Paul and Barnabas, they, they, they are, they're inspired by Peter. They're obviously wanting to convert these Gentiles. And guess what? They follow Peter up. They, they stand up and they start to recount all the miracles, all of the wonders, all the great things that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Or in other words, the uncircumcised. And they're challenging them. Listen, God is doing great things with these Gentile people. We can't turn around and tell them they have to be circumcised. And so after Paul and Barnabas go, it's James's turn. And so James stands up and he follows up Peter and Paul with Scripture. He follows it up with Scripture supporting the fact that Gentiles were part of the promise. And so once Peter has spoken, once Paul has spoken, and once James has spoken on the matter... Our introduction to Silas takes place in verse 22 of chapter 15. Where it says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. So here we see that out of the whole church of Jerusalem, the, the thousands that were converted there at Pentecost and the great amount of apostles and, and elders that were there, out of all the men that were chosen to be sent out to give this judgment, this decree, maybe this understanding about circumcision, 
And of all those people, they chose Silas to be one of those men. And it says why? It says because he was a leader from among all the brethren. And the text continues in verse 23. It says, They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words and settling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so the church in Jerusalem sends out this letter, and they give it literally, physically, to Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas. And they're tasked with going to the church in Antioch and orally reporting this letter to this decision to the church there written from the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem. And they're going to tag along beside Barnabas and Paul. And so the text continues in verse 30. It says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after that, they had stayed there for a long time. They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so here in our text tonight, just now we've seen that Silas has delivered the letter to the multitude of Gentiles to whom this pertains to. Gentiles who were worried, legitimately worried about the validity of their salvation. And upon reading the letter, the crowd, it says, rejoiced. The crowd rejoiced over the encouragement that was found within the letter. And we also see that Silas was a prophet who exhorted and strengthened the brethren. He encouraged the church with many words, it says. And once this encouragement, this strengthening, this exhortation was complete, they wanted to send him back to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem with many greetings and thanksgiving. And yet again, we see Silas be this bearer of great news. He had just talked to this predominantly Jewish Jewish people over in Jerusalem. Now he's talking to this predominantly Gentile audience in Antioch and both situations trusted him with this information and some of your translations might not include verse 34 where mine says, however it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Some translations do not use that verse based on different text variants and you can study that for yourself. But what we do know is that Barnabas and Paul 
because of Silas, were able to remain in Antioch, bringing souls to the Lord. Gentile souls, as they taught and preached the word of the Lord. You know, what a tremendous encouragement for the church this must have been. To know fully once and for all that Christ had liberated the world from sin. And He didn't stop there. He liberated the church from Mosaic law and different precepts. He liberated them from the knowledge that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You don't need that anymore. All you need is Christ. And Silas, our unsung hero, guess who he was? He was the one to bring that encouragement to the church. He was the one to break the great news that had to change their life. Silas was the one that the church chose to encourage, to exhort, to strengthen the brethren. But just like many of us who have been in ministry, many of us who have been involved in the church leadership, Whenever you have times of great rejoicing, times of great success, there is probably some drama or some problem happening right around the corner. And that's what happens in verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed with them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Saul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So Paul realized, hey, listen, Barnabas, it's probably a good time for us to go back and to talk to all these congregations that we've established throughout all these Gentile cities and encourage them. It's time to go back and preach the word to them and let them also know about how great their salvation is through Christ and how it doesn't require mosaic practices anymore like circumcision. He says, hey, let's go see how they're holding up. And Barnabas was in complete agreement about this. Yes, we definitely need to go back. We need to preach. We need to encourage them the way we have done before. But Barnabas was like, you know, let's, let's give John Mark another shot here. If you go back in Acts 13 and verse 13, you see that John Mark had decided to go back to Jerusalem in the middle of their journey. When they had reached Perga, he decided to go back to Jerusalem for one reason or the other. The text says here that he had not gone with them to the work. And so he decided to go back to Jerusalem for one reason or another. And Paul is coming from a standpoint of, let's do what's going to be most effective for our mission. What's going to be most effective for our mission? And what he thinks is, John Mark's just not that. John Mark has not proven himself to be what is most effective. And Barnabas, coming from the standpoint that he always came from, willing to give people chances and find ways to encourage them, he thinks it's best to give John Mark another shot. And so both sides of these arguments, they're not necessarily wrong. Paul's not wrong for wanting the mission to be effective, and Barnabas is not wrong for wanting to give this guy another shot. 
But sometimes both of the arguments don't have to be wrong. If you can't come to consensus, it's time to part ways. So Barnabas says, listen, here, I'll take Mark to Cyprus. And Paul says, well, all right, I'll take that guy who did such a good job delivering the great news from Jerusalem. I'll take Silas. Because of the great report of the brethren through the grace of God, we'll go over to Syria and Cilicia and we'll strengthen the church over there. And what they don't realize is, even though this is a bit of drama, even though this is a bit of contention, such a sharp dispute, uh, contention became so sharp, they parted from one. Even though it's becoming so sharp and contentious, what they don't realize is that this is the absolute best thing for the church. Because now the church, the kingdom, the, the gospel was able to spread twice as far, twice as fast by splitting them up. And not only that, but this time, because of Barnabas' decision to strengthen John Mark, John Mark would soon become the Mark who penned the second gospel in our Bible. But likely, even though it's the second in our Bible, it was likely the first gospel released to the church, years before Matthew, Luke, or John. So immediately after this, as you look into Acts chapter 16, Luke continues to follow Paul and Silas as he records Acts and not Barnabas and Mark. There's no reason for that. He's not choosing sides. But it shows that he's about to record their travels to Derby and to Lystra and how they were going to pick up this great young man named Timothy. And so they do that. They pick him up over there in Derby in Lystra. And he become Paul's greatest son in the faith. And then we see in chapter 16 how the Spirit would not permit them to pass into Asia or Bithynia. And ultimately the Macedonian call happens. And so Paul, Luke, and Silas, they go to Troas and then Neapolis and then Philippi, the foremost city of Macedonia where they would meet and convert another woman. Remember our study on Luke, him recording about women. Another woman by the name of Lydia, this seller of purple. And there Silas is alongside of Paul converting her. And this leads us to our next great example of why we have this unsung hero, Silas. Beginning in verse 16. Now it happened as we went in prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed or distressed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And so stop there in our text. We see that Paul and Silas are now being challenged, are now being chastised, are now literally being dragged through the streets. Why? Because they cast out this this spirit, this, this evil spirit of divination among this poor, helpless slave girl. Seems like an honorable thing to do, does it not? Well, wherever money is, honor's not. 
And so once that slave girl could no longer fortune tell, she was of no use to her master, and so her master was no longer making any money. It doesn't matter that she was in torment. He was making bank off of that because she was a fortune teller. So Paul, he looks at her, he casts the spirit out of the girl, which left this man with no more profit anymore. And so he gets this band of guys together, and they go get Paul and Silas. They bring him before the marketplace, the authorities, the magistrates, and they're seeking restitution for this. How dare you do this? This is your business. The text continues in verse 20. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stock. So here they are simply trying to save this slave girl from being tormented by this evil spirit. And because of that, they've been stripped of their clothes. They've been beaten with rods. They've been given many stripes. They've been thrown into prison. But not only prison, they had been secured by the jailer himself and put into the innermost part of the prison, the deepest, most secure place. And they're fastened to stocks on the floor. You know, many times as we study the life of Paul, we read the list of sufferings that Paul lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he talks about how he was beaten, how he was striped, how he was stoned, how he was shipwrecked, how he was naked, how he was without food, how, and, but upon these things his greatest concern for the church, right? And we, we read 2 Corinthians 11 and we only think about Paul. We only think about how great Paul was for su- surviving those trials. We think about how great Paul must have been, how strong his faith must have been, how devoted and dedicated to the cause of Christ Paul was. And every bit of that is true, and every bit of that is valid, and we should never seek to diminish what Paul went through and what he witnessed and what he got through. But how many times do we read those sufferings and we examine his story How many times do we read this story and think about it from the lens of Silas? Silas, who was right there receiving the same sufferings, blow for blow, stripe for stripe, stock for stock. How many times do we envision what it must have been like for Silas, who suffered? for the cause of Christ, the same way Paul did. Our text continues in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed and the keeper of the prison waking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do not cause yourself any harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. You know, as you read this story, as we study this account tonight, have you ever wondered who started singing the first song? Have you ever wondered to yourself what type of song it would have been? you ever wondered who started the singing? And I know we can't know who started the singing, but what we know is Silas was a part of the singing. I'm singing all the time, but that don't mean people are singing around me, I'll tell you that much. You can ask my wife, singing all the time. But the fact that they joined in singing together made all the difference. And Silas is there singing praises to God in the midst of the potentially most scary moment of his life, Silas is here singing praises to God. It's one thing for us to think about Paul singing and Paul praying and Paul saying that everything's going to be all right. You might, ex you might expect that from Paul. It's another thing for Silas. This guy who basically, not too long ago, joined up with Paul. But here, we don't see him thinking and taking a moment to say, hmm, I think I should have gone with Barnabas and Mark. I bet they're not like us right now. I, I think I have hitched my wagon to the wrong horse here. We don't see Silas being fearful or wishing that he was back in Jerusalem or we don't see Silas wishing he could go back to just being the guy who got to report good news and talk about good things and happy things all the time. We don't see Silas doing that. Instead, we see Silas singing praises to God and praying. And because of that, we see that the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to them pray, teaching and admonishing one another in songs hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19, right? They were teaching, they were admonishing. They were singing with grace in their hearts to the Lord. And that's exactly what they were doing to all of those prison prisoners in the midst of tremendous adversity. And at that time, this earthquake happens and all the stocks were loosened, all the prisoners were freed from their cells and the jailer, you know, woke up, maybe got knocked out. He woke up from this and he's like, what's going on? All these people must be gone. And so he tries to kill himself out of shame. But Paul stops him from doing that. And the jailer runs in and it says that he is fall, he's fallen down, trembling at the feet. Paul and Silas. And this is where Silas slaps him across the face and says, this is what you get for beating me with rods. This is what you get for striping me across my back. This is what you get for putting me in stocks. No. That might be what I would do 
might be what you would do, but it's not what Silas does. Not even close. Verse 30. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Notice as we go up back to verse 30, the jailer does not say, Paul, tell me what I need to do. Paul, tell me what I need to do to become a Christian. He doesn't say, or the Bible doesn't say, Paul told him to believe on the Lord. The Bible doesn't say Paul spoke the word of the Lord. Instead, Luke records the man asking Paul and Silas, what do I have to do to be saved? by when he says sirs, plural. Luke also records, so they said to him. Luke preserves this idea that they spoke the word of the Lord to him and that Paul and Silas baptized this entire family into Christ. And in large part because of Silas, this man was able to rejoice that his entire household had believed on God because of Silas and Paul. And after this, Paul indicates to the authorities as you continue through chapter 16 that they had been illegally beaten because they were Roman citizens. Both he and Silas both were Roman citizens, so that scared you know, the Philippian uh, magistrates to death. So they were released immediately, and we find them going into the next, you know, the next chapter, chapter 17, into Thessalonica and doing amazing work there. And they found the more fair-minded Bereans who searched the Scriptures daily, right? And we find Paul and Silas going from Athens to the Areopagus, to the, you know, all the things that happened in chapter 17, about at verse 30. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Chapter 18, going into ministering into Corinth, and all the while we forget that Silas was there every step of the way. For every great, every amazing, every inspiring thing that happens between Acts chapter 15 to Acts chapter 18, Silas was there. And it is assumed that after Corinth, in chapter 18, Silas and Paul parted ways. It doesn't give us a falling out as it did with Barnabas. It doesn't give us a record why this happened. But this is simply just the last time that we read about Paul and Silas being together. But as we know, that's not the end of Silas' story. We may not know what happened to Silas after Corinth immediately, but we can know that the story doesn't end there. Because evidently Silas went on to have a tremendous impact on the life of Peter. If you turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, we're going to see something very interesting here. At the end of his first epistle in chapter 5, Peter says, by 
Silvanus, or through Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So evidently, after departing from the greatest missionary who ever lived, Silas went on and hitched his wagon to perhaps the greatest apostle. And he hitched his wagon to Peter. You know, scholars debate, and, and, and people can debate all day long about what this verse means. Does this mean that Silas was the true author of 1 Peter? It says, by Silvanus, I have written to you briefly. Does this mean he's the author of 1 Peter? Does this mean that he was some sort of amanuensis? That would be the person charged with writing down what Peter had said orally. Does it mean that he is a co-author who helped Peter produce this book? Some scholars have said, when you look at the Greek of 1 Peter, it wouldn't really match up with what you would think a fisherman would be able to do. So it makes sense that Silas, Silvanus was there, who was taught, who was educated, who was able to write in this manner. And the scholars go on and on and can debate all day long about that. I don't really care. But what I do care about is that Silas evidently had an amazing impact on the life of Peter. Because here at the end of his epistle, he says, I consider him a faithful brother. And either through him or with him or something or the other, I have written this epistle to you. What an amazing thing to be said about Silas. When we thought the story was over, right? You know, that's not the only book that Silas was a part of or deserves perhaps more credit for, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So how does he address this book? He says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica. And so the question is, yet again, does this mean that Silas had some part in writing the book or some co-authorship or some composition role? Again, I don't have the answer to that, but all I can tell you is that Paul and Silas and Timothy are addressing the church in Thessalonica. You want another one? Turn to the next book. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, a very identical, literally identical verse in verse 1. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet again, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church in Thessalonica. Does this mean that they contributed to the writing, to the authorship, to the composition? I'm not sure. And I guess I'll leave that up to Mike as he teaches this next week, to figure it out for you, you know, as he teaches from First First and Second Thessalonians this coming up quarter. All I know is that Silas will forever be attached to three epistles. And that's not even to mention his role in the book of Acts that we've studied tonight. And so as we think about the life of Silas tonight, 
what takeaway can we apply to our life? What application can we look at our lives and go, yep, that's what I need to learn from the life of Silas. Tonight it is true that God does not call all of us to be the chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentile nation. God does not call all of us or expect all of us to be the Apostle Paul. But it is also true that every single person listening tonight can be like the leader, the prophet, the faithful brother, the one who strengthened the brethren and the comforter, whose reputation deemed him worthy to accompany Paul. Every single one of us can be Silas. Because when you think about it, when you think about the life of Silas, all Silas did was shine his light among the darkness that was around him. When the church was divided over the matter of circumcision, when thousands, literally of th thousands of people from city to city were being accused of not fully gaining salvation based on an absolute, obsolete tradition, Silas shined his light. And he declared to the church in Antioch all that they needed was the blood of Christ. When Paul and Barnabas were so divided that the spreading of the gospel was literally hindered and may not have gone any farther from those group of people, Silas shined bright. And the good news was able to spread twice as fast and twice as far because of it. When the Philippians' slave owner dragged them into the streets and caused them to be beaten, to be striped, to be stripped of their clothes and thrown into the deepest, most secure part of the prison, Silas shined his light. And he sang praises to God in the midst of torment for the cause of Christ. And when the earthquake freed them from their cells and their stocks and the Philippian jailer trembled at their feet, Silas shined his light and told them about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and he baptized that jailer's family instead of returning evil for evil. And as he went into Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth with Paul, Silas shined his light every step of the way, and when it came time for him to part from Paul, he went to Peter. And kept shining his light on and on and on for as long as we read about him through the Bible. Silas shined his light. Every Wednesday, the ministers here are given the opportunity to perform chapel uh, for the preschool kids, the Sunflower Preschool. And so we, we like to sing songs with them. We have a, a Bible lesson. We lead prayer with them. And we get to know the, the children that way. And I happen to be leading chapel this morning. And one of the songs that we sang was this little Christian light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. And when we sang that song, when we sing the, the, that, that type of song, we know how kids love to just wave their tiny little fingers around. And when it's time to hide it under a bushel, they love to scream, no, you know, and I love to really scream louder. 
But they learn in that song that they need to let their light shine. Let their light shine. Let their light shine all the time. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Silas was the light of the world. Silas had every opportunity to hide his light under a basket. But instead, he placed it on that lampstand to give light to all the people who were in the prison. And because of that, they saw his good works. And they glorified God, the Father in heaven. But what about me? It's great for Silas to shine his light, but tonight, as I ask myself, do I let my light shine? I'll be honest with you, sometimes here lately, it's been hard for me not to let Satan blow the fire out. Sometimes for you, has it not been difficult lately to just put that basket on top of the light and take a break for a while. And to think to yourself, my light's been up on that lampstand for such a long time, and no one cares or wants it there. I've been shining my light, or at least trying to, and all I do is get burned. I get burned by other people, I get burned by other Christians, I get burned by everybody else, so just forget it. Have you been there? I'll admit tonight that there have been way more times than I'd like to admit that I've been there. But Silas, the life of Silas challenges me tonight to in the midst of my storms, in the midst of my trials and sufferings, to keep my light shining, to keep on praying, and to keep on singing the praises of God anyway. And if we're ever going to be the church that God intended for us to be, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take members who never let their light get put out. Tonight, if your light has been put out, take the basket off. If your light has been blown out by Satan, light it up again. Because the world needs that light. And the world needs to glorify the Father. And without you, it won't be able to. Because it won't be able to see the Father. That's what our light does. I want to thank you for your attention tonight, and as you've put up with me the last couple of quarters on Wednesday night, thank you 
your encouragement has meant the world to me and I look forward to next week as we have more and more offerings uh, Kyle teaching us about how we got the Bible and exactly what the Bible means to us and with that I want to ask Kyle to come and lead us in a word of closing prayer